everyone dreams about living an uncommon life. But how we define that dream is very different for each of us. And for most, it's a lifelong pursuit. Welcome to the Uncommon Life Project Podcast. We're going to introduce you to people who are living that life or enjoying the journey to get there. We're going to also give you some tools, tricks, and tips for starting or accelerating your own efforts to live an uncommon life, a life worth celebrating and savoring. Please welcome your hosts, Brian Dewhurst and Philip Ramsey. Hi, everyone. My name is Philip Ramsey with the Uncommon Life Project. And I'm Brian Dewhurst. Thank you, Francine, for the wonderful introduction. So nice to have her. <laughs> Just so nice. Guys, we have a great, great show for you today. We have Justin Taylor, just a close friend of mine. Um, and now Brian. In, he knows him. Yeah. Uh, in full disclosure, he's actually a family member of mine, which couldn't be more blessed to have him. So Justin, we're excited to have you on the show. Let's give him a bio and yeah. we'll go from there. I hope we get some real Philip stories today too that we've maybe <laughs> never heard before. But uh, So Justin Taylor got his doctorate from Southern Seminary, is the executive vice president of book publishing and book publisher at Crossway in Wheaton, Illinois. Prior to that, he worked at Desiring God in Minneapolis. He and his wife, Leah, have five beautiful children. He has two blogs, Between Two Worlds and Evangelical History both hosted by the Gospel Coalition. He served as the managing director, editor of the award-winning ESV Study Bible. Thank you, Justin, for coming. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to be with you guys. Yeah. Let's just jump right into it because we got so much to cover as we always do in these shows. But let's talk about, for the first start, let's talk about just your career path and how have you gotten to Crossway and where you're at currently. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I grew up in Iowa, in Sioux City, Iowa, where I met my, my wife. And uh, fast forward to college, I went to University of Northern Iowa and was a study of religion major, which was uh, exciting and life-changing and difficult all at once. Uh, graduated a few years later and then moved up to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where I I started an apprenticeship program, started kind of graduate level coursework uh, at a church called Bethlehem Baptist Church up in Minneapolis. And after that, I was going to go on to seminary. And uh, I think I actually even got a scholarship, got the, the moving van lined up. <laughs> and uh, the guy who was working for the pastor of the church uh, as an editor, uh, he was stepping down to take another position. And they asked me if I'd fill in for one year while well, they uh, took some time to find somebody longer. They knew I kind of wanted to go on to do graduate work. And that year uh, when that was up, I was planning again to go to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And they asked me, would you consider maybe staying on for a few more years and making this a longer term thing? That was really a big decision for us as a couple. We didn't have children yet, trying to figure out life path and, and thinking, if I stay with this job, which I like, am I really kind of giving up on um, going to school and furthering my academic work? And uh, long story short, I ended up staying there for several more years um, and, and enjoying the work very much. Um, I, it's one of those things I couldn't have planned it out mm -hmm. in advance. But I uh, feel like the, the Lord directed me in that path. And so had some very uh, happy and productive years working there. And then I guess it was about 12 or 13 years ago now that uh, Crossway as a publisher, I knew them, they knew me, and they asked if I'd want to come along and uh, 
manage a, a big, massive study Bible project. I think at first they were thinking of it as sort of a residual income opportunity for me where I could work full time for the ministry up there and do this mm-hmm. kind of as a side gig. But it quickly became evident that you know, this would be virtually a full-time job for the next couple of years. So we moved down here after praying about it and thinking about it and getting wise counsel. And I've been at Crossway ever since. Nice. So now, so Justin, you're obviously a Christian author. At what point in your, I guess, career path did you realize that you wanted to pursue something for your vocation? Yeah, I... I'm I'm not sure, you know, the exact date when that would have happened, but um, I've always enjoyed being a behind the scenes guy. Um, I can do some public speaking, I can do some writing, but ever since college, I realized like other guys are better at getting up and speaking than I am, but they come to me and they might ask like, what do you think about this? Or what if I say that? And I'm kind of help them out and maybe can take something that's good and make it better. So I think even in college, I realized that that's a gifting I have. You know, I, I can speak and uh, I can write, but it seemed like I was kind of being directed along the lines of partnering with other people to help them extend their platform and uh, refine their message. And so I think that was kind of the planting of the seeds for really the further work that I ended up doing, whether that was uh, working at first with John Piper and helping him and now working with other authors and working for a publisher. Mm-hmm. We got a lot there. I want to die. <laughs> okay. First, first you kind of talked about, you know, the Lord helped you in the decision to continue to stay on mm-hmm. as opposed to pursuing the seminary. Can you walk our listeners through what that looks like to really, you know, hear from God. You're young, you know, newly married, I take it probably mm-hmm. in your twenties. What does that look like to kind of call out to God and hear his voice in that? Yeah. Well, that was really a, a big existential uh, life moment for me of what do I want to do with my career? Because as everybody knows, as you guys know, as I know, everybody listening knows what you end up doing for a living, for a vocation, ends up being so significant in terms of the people that you interact with, whether you're in a job that you enjoy, whether you're in a job that you're gifted for. Mm. And uh, I really enjoyed the work that I was doing at Desiring God. But it became clear to me, kind of just trying to figure out what's going on internally inside of me. Uh, You know, a big question, I think, was, is this a job where I could advance within the company. Hmm. And I I had a pretty significant position and there wasn't really a way for me to advance up. I would not be a good, I'm not entrepreneurially driven. I wouldn't have been a good executive director. So I was kind of at the place where I would go within the company. And I asked myself, is this where I want to be, you know, when I'm 65 years old? Do I want to stay here for for decades, you know, from my 20s to my through my 60s? And I knew pretty intuitively, like, this this is not the right fit for me for years and years. Great kind of launch to my career and vocation. So then the question becomes, like, what do I do next? <laughs> so do I just stick it out? Yeah. Do I wait to hear some voice from God? Do I wait, you know, do I hire somebody as a coach consultant to tell me this is what you need to do with your life? Um, so even circumstantially, I had to consider 
the sort of giftings that I had yeah. and limitations that I have, because my wife and I have talked about this, you know, once, once a year or two, it seems like once a year or every other year, she might mention <laughs> moving back to Iowa. Oh. Like, why can't we just move back to Iowa? Because <laughs> we're, you know, an eight hour drive away from our family. But the problem is given my training and gifting and interest, I can't just move anywhere. I could, I think I would, I could do freelance, but my income would go down and opportunities would go down if I'm not working for a company. So it's not like an accountant or a financial consultant or a school teacher or a fireman. I mean, if you're a fireman, you can conceivably move any place in the country where they need to put out fires. Sure. <laughs> you know, school teacher, if there's kids that need learning, you know, theoretically you can move there. If you're kind of a, a book nerd, theologian, editor, like they don't need those in Sioux City. <laughs> those in Des Moines, they might need them in Chicago or Nashville or Orlando or Colorado Springs. So it, that just automatically limited my vocations. Um, I'm probably giving you guys a longer answer than you want. No, these are great. Great answers. Yeah. I was thinking in terms of how I'm gifted and what my limitations are and what my interests are that really only two career paths were open for me realistically. I could get further training and become a pastor, or I could get further training, namely a PhD, and become a professor. Like those are the two Ps, pastor or professor. <laughs> I can't think of anything else to do. And uh, I think through the, the kind providence of God, the idea of a third P, publishing, uh, came along. I was not necessarily looking for it, but when it came to me, I realized, as I was talking about earlier, going back to college days, like I'm actually pretty good at helping people behind the scenes. I like words and writing and editing. I'm not the big upfront guy. I'm not going to ever write a best-selling book, probably. I'm never going to headline a big conference. Uh, this actually takes kind of both of those worlds of the academic world and the pastoral world and creates kind of a third path. So the, the short answer, I think, is that I think the internal feelings and desires are an important part of discerning God's will, and especially in terms of vocation. But I think a neglected part of it is also um, keeping your eyes open to your circumstances, knowing yourself, what you're good at, what, what you're not good at. Mm. And then also listening to and seeking out wise counsel of, of what are other people uh, observing in me? What do they think are, are opportunities that would work for me? And then there's no mathematical formula. You stir those all together. Uh, as a Christian, try to be um, prayerful and obedient and humble and not to rush things. Uh, I think if I had tried to plan out a career in publishing, it probably would not have worked or gone as well as it has. So uh, just mm, very good. cultivating those virtues of per patience, prayerfulness, humility, um, and seeking of wise counsel. Uh, awesome. I think the Lord directs those ways. I think you're right. So let's talk about the wise counsel. Let's talk about the mentors in your life and how have they helped you kind of steer you down the path that you're at? Yeah, I can think of a lot of a lot of mentors, um, you know, from my parents in a in a younger phase of my life to um, ministry leaders, from professors. Um, my most influential professor, again, as a confessional evangelical Christian, was um, was a professor at 
the university who didn't believe what I believed and uh, challenged me regularly. So I think that was an important part of, of being mentored as somebody who can challenge you and say, that's not careful thinking that needs to be articulated more carefully Mm. Uh, to others who believe very much what I believe and kind of one step ahead of me can help me and uh, teach me, take me under their wing. That's been a, just a crucial part of, of my development. Um, I feel badly for people who think that that the way to discern God's will and the way to figure out a vocation is to kind of just go off in a corner and get quiet and, you know, wait to hear a voice or something like that. Mm. I think God's designed us to be in community mm. and to have people who we can influence and who can influence us. And so that's that's a big part of my pathway, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Very cool. So one of the things, the other word that you've mentioned, there's two more I have, but uh, you mentioned giftings. And are you specifically talking about the spiritual gifts or kind of walk us through your thought process there? Yeah, I think, you know, there's overlap between maybe what we could call natural gifting and spiritual gifting. So um there are certain things where we we all just have skills, we have inclinations, we have things that uh, we're good at and some things that we're not so good at, some things that seem to come easily and are more intuitive. Maybe I'd call those something like natural gifting. And then as Christians, thinking there's there's a spiritual component to that too, that the Holy Spirit works through us and guides us. And usually, you know, there's a lot of overlap between the natural and the spiritual gifting. So I think of it as a way that just we're wired. Hmm. Uh, we're, we're naturally inclined. It's the sort of things when you, you do them, it, it feels right. It feels like a fit. Hmm. Uh, it doesn't feel like you're always trying to put a square into a round hole. You know, you're just trying to force it and it's just not working. Um. I say this recognizing not everybody feels that great sense of I'm exactly where I want to be vocationally. And some people are in jobs where they just need to make it to the finish line. And I think there's a blessing and a nobility in that. But in an ideal world, I think we want what we do our our calling. You know, the word vocation is from a Latin word of vocatio, which means calling. And I think that there's an internal sense of that, this, this uh, career path, this opportunity, this uh, way of relating to the world that lines up with the way in which I've been designed. And when that, that works and you're fulfilling your calling, I think that's just, it's a wonderful place to be. And I assume everybody listening wants to be in their proper vocation and operating kind of firing on all cylinders. Absolutely. That's neat. Yeah. So the other word I kind of keyed in on was partnering. So you kind of mentioned taking like uh, you like kind of the behind the scenes work and, you know, given everything that's been going on in the headlines, what's it been like as a Christian to kind of put your character and your name on these books and partner with people? And like, what's that process like of evaluating the people you're going to work with and co-author with? And, uh, you know, how do you navigate that? Yeah, that's a really difficult part of our job because, um, you know, as a publisher and as a Christian publisher, just putting the name of the publisher on the spine of the book, you know, there's integrity there. And uh, if we put out something that's untrue or harmful or um, 
lead people astray, that comes back on us because, um, you know, there may be some publishing programs that say, we just want to do a smorgasbord approach. And if you find it helpful, great. If you find it rotten, just move on and grab another entree. Uh, we take a, a different approach. Where we really want to endorse everything that, um, that we're publishing. So there's, I guess, two different aspects to that the endorsement of ideas. I don't want to um, believe wrong things or convey wrong things. Just like for you guys in the financial world, you don't want to be passing along advice that would trip people up or get them in trouble or, you know, be some sort of booby trap for them financially. Um, the same would be true in terms of publishing. We don't want to publish bad or misleading stuff. The other part of it then is uh, the people behind it, the authors. And there you can actually, we shouldn't make a strong separation, but you can actually distinguish between the message and the messenger. Mm. So, for example, there is a pastor in the UK. Uh, we can multiply examples in the US too that uh, wrote very good books and delivered very good sermons. And you can go and listen to them today and think that is really helpful. That's true. That's mm. illuminating. That's enlightening. And he left his marriage and he made shipwreck of his faith. And, mm. you know, it, it's really a, a sad story, but you can distinguish between the two. Like, that was a good message. And the messenger proved to be unreliable. So in the ideal world, we do everything we can to try to bring those two together so that it's a, a faithful message. And we're partnering with people of strong character who, um, you know, can, can vouch for what they've written and be the sort of people we can trust. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's a great, great answer. So let's, this obviously is a financial podcast, so let's yeah. go there. Um, dig into it. Uh, so we really are high on seven sources of residual income to help people start gaining traction in financial freedom. Whatever that time period is, it depends on the person and how aggressive they want to fight through that. How have you and your wife, I guess, thought through this as you are now an author? We would say that you have one um, with royalties um, of the seven sources of residual income. You probably have another one, 401k, and you probably have an affiliate income somehow because of the blogs that you write and all the subscribers that are going through that. So could you talk to me a little bit about how you have organized that for your plan? Yeah, I, I, I really commend you guys and Commonwealth for, for making that a point of emphasis of um, thinking through residual income in creative ways apart from the nine to five job uh, for some people and for, for others um, who may not have a, a full-time employer, bringing in extra income that can, um, you know, pay for things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to afford or to add to savings and add to security. So yeah, the, in, in the book publishing world, especially in the, the Christian publishing world, there's very few people that are making a living off of it. I mean, almost none. Hmm. Um, and I think that's probably true for the secular world too. So 90 8% of people who are writing books aren't, that's not their primary source of income. So almost all people who are involved in book publishing uh, are receiving royalty. And that can even be through self-publishing or working through a traditional publisher. Um, but it all ends up being into that 
going into that category of residual income. And for us, that's been helpful. Um, in particular, when um, our kids became of school age and we were thinking about private school, as we looked at our income from my job and my wife's a stay-at-home mom, so we're a single-income family, and then looked at the the cost of private school, it just seemed like there's there's really no way that we can make this happen. But then some opportunities with residual income came along that were able then to be funneled directly towards that kind of earmarked for uh, private school education. So uh, really thankful for those opportunities. And yeah, and along with you guys, you guys are, are better advocates of it than I am. Um, but it's it's something all of us probably in different stations of life and to different degrees, depending upon needs and wants, yeah, can utilize that in a really helpful way. Yeah. And you live in Chicago and they have tolls. And so those tolls add up. I just, Philip hates, hates the tolls. I just hate them. I hate them. I hate them. Are you the kind of guy that would drive out of your way? To avoid yes, it? totally. <laughs> he is that guy. And I've been in the car with oh, that guy. Man. So nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, so let's break this down even one degree further, I think, because so many people, I mean, the book world is just exploding. Everybody's writing a book, and I think you made a great point. They aren't living off of those books, mm -hmm. but it is a supplement to, you know, uh, to the main source of income, and from a branding perspective, it probably helps promote speaking engagements, mm -hmm. uh, you know, online courses, that type of thing. What, what, um, what would you give the listener who's like, I, there's a deep burning desire inside of me. I want to write something. I want to get this out. What, what's that process like to get from, from nothing, an idea <laughs> to a self-publishing type platform or, you know, even working with an organization like yourself? Yeah, that's a great question. I think about it all the time. And um, I tend to think this is not some, you know, brilliant analogy, but what usually comes to my mind is almost like a three-legged stool when it comes to publishing of um, the message, the messenger, and the audience. And I think that really all three of those need to be there or, you know, try and sit on a two-legged stool or a one-legged stool or a no-legged <laughs> stool. It's not going to work very well. Sure. Um, so I, I think it has to be as, as a potential author thinks through potential projects, is this a compelling message? Or does it already exist? So if it already exists, why are you going to do it? That's, that's not the end of the conversation because maybe there's a great reason. Sure. Maybe there's a really good resource out there, but it's, it's 10 years old and it's kind of out of date now. Um, maybe there's a great resource out, of, out there, but it's really pitched for uh, males who are married and who are Anglo and live in the Midwest, and you can write it for a different demographic. There's all sorts of, of reasons there, but I think it all starts with the message. Is this a compelling message? So that's question number one. Number two, are you a compelling messenger? Um, are you, do you have the training to, to write on this? Uh, do you have the passion to write on it? Um, I think as somebody who sees like a lot of projects, some of the worst projects are somebody has got a good message, 
it's maybe even a need for it, but they're not passionate about it. It's not mm. burning within them to get it out. They can do it because they're skilled or they've got the training, but they're not, they're not living, breathing, like feel this burden of I've got to write it even if nobody reads it. Mm-hmm. So the author's passion and, and skill, um, you know, again, they, they might have the passion and skill, but not have quite the right message. But I think when those two come together, and then the kind of the third leg of the stool, I think, is, is the audience. Um, is there a way for the audience, number one, to know you exist? Number two, do they need something on this right now? And because you can be really skilled on a topic. I, I kind of dabble in the academic world, so, and I'm not an academician, but there's all sorts of topics that people write dissertations on that are really fascinating, but they're such a narrow slice of the mm-hmm. world that mm-hmm. they're an expert. They're passionate about it. They may even be the, the best expert in the world, but nobody wants to read it. For four people. <laughs> four people. Right. <laughs> and, and you may need to write that before the four people who are going to give you a doctorate, but you're also probably not going to be able to publish a book on it because you can't, uh, as a, as a self, uh, proprietor, you're not going to get a return on your investment and no publisher is going to want to invest in it. So those are some of the different factors that go into thinking about publishing. Um, but it really is an interesting world now. If we were having this conversation 50 years ago, we wouldn't be podcasting, obviously. But, <laughs> sure. um, you know, what, what would your options be? Your options would be write it in a journal if you've got some message you're excited about, but nobody's going to read it. Mm-hmm. Or you can write it and try to get a publisher. And you might get turned down by 20 different publishers. But if you guys wanted to write a book, you guys could have a book published next month if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the opportunities are sort of endless in terms of writing because there's there's no longer the the barriers um, to getting your book out there. Literally anybody can write a book if they have the capital to invest and the time to invest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we want to make sure that we're doing the best possible job, that it meets audiences' needs, that we're skilled and we're equipped to do it. And that's where it's helpful, I think, to have people in your life who are honest and can be candid with you. Mm. Years ago, I had a guy sit down in my office and say, this is before I worked at publishing. And he just said, I really want to be uh, teaching and speaking and going to conferences. And, and he was really socially awkward, which is not a sin to be a socially awkward, <laughs> but it's probably a sin if you, like can't teach. And so I could tell that this guy could not teach his way probably out of a paper bag, but I didn't tell him that. I just said, why don't you go and ask people what they think of your teaching? Um, If you get an opportunity at your church, try a Sunday school class. And then if people are asking you to come back, that's a good sign. If they're not, that may be one of the ways the Lord's showing you this may not be your calling in your direction. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. The vast majority of us won't be public speakers and won't be published authors. That's, that's fine, but it's trying to find your lane and, and we need people to help us think through that because we're not always the best at discerning it ourselves. I, don't I totally agree. And just to compliment <laughs> that story and analogy is the American idol, you know, when those people get up and they just belt it out and you're like, Oh, do you not have anybody in your life to tell you, <laughs> you might not want to do that. You know? <laughs> yeah. And the funny thing about that is that they're usually the ones saying, 
well, people have told me my whole life, like yeah. I'm an amazing singer. Yeah. <laughs> you need to get different friends. <laughs> Sometimes great. your family is not your friends. Exactly. Oh man, that's hilarious. Let's talk about the sacrifices that you and Leah have had to make to get to where you're at today. Yeah, that's a great question. I, uh, I don't know how to answer it entirely because one of the things that I've, I've wanted to be conscious of um, not sacrificing my family on the, the altar of success. I don't know that I've always gotten that balance right. And I, I think there are times when I load up too much on my plate or it gets discouraging for them. But I was really struck a few years ago by um, a guy named Larry Osborne whom I don't know personally, he's a pastor and author. And he, he writes books all the time now. I'm probably a book a year. Uh, but he said when he was young, he just made this commitment that he was going to go to all of his kids' sports games. He was going to be home in the evenings as much as he could. And it just didn't work for him to write books in that season of life when his kids were little. And he said, you know, now my, my kids are grown. They all love Jesus. I have a lot of time to write and I wouldn't change anything. Um, so I'm not answering your question directly, maybe because I feel a little weird saying like, well, oh, I've made all these sacrifices or something sure. like that. No. I do think there's, there's a lot of hard work that needs to go into trying to be the best that you can be. Um, but I think especially for people um, in their twenties and thirties, sometimes that desire to succeed and to be ambitious can overwhelm other things in life. Mm. And, um, mm. you know, so it, again, it's a balancing act, but um, yeah, sometimes it means staying up later. Sometimes it means getting up earlier. Um, sometimes it means trying to squeeze stuff in the cracks. Um, sometimes it just means saying no to um, not every, not saying yes to every good opportunity that comes along that, that can be one of the, the hardest things, especially for somebody like me who tends to be a little bit more of a people pleaser. Um, don't want to disappoint people. Don't want to let them down. So I say yes to everybody um, except the people who are closest to me yeah. and end up frustrating them and taking advantage of them. I think so. that's two. back to your point is one, how do you define success? Yeah. Right. There's the first thing. And then two, let's get getting around people who will will challenge that and saying yeah you might be a bazillionaire but are you going to have the things that are most important to you mm -hmm. your family your kids or where are they going to be at or are they just going to be just by the wayside while you pursue your dreams it's a great point so tell me this how do you parent in this day and age in chicago with all the stuff going on how do you and leah parent well and pointing people and pointing your children to Christ? Well, I think any honest parent feels like he or she is regularly failing and not, yeah. not doing enough. So that, that would be the first thing to say is, um, you know, I, I don't want to assume from your question, like, I don't, I don't necessarily want to grant the premise. But <laughs> yes, you're right. I am doing an amazing job. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. Um, yeah. <laughs> You know, going back to something I said earlier, I think uh, I'm kind of on a kick lately, I guess, on uh, anti-individualism um, because I think our whole American culture is very 
oriented toward just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Um, you have all the resources that you need within yourself to succeed. And again, I don't think God has created us that way. So even with parenting, uh, I would not want to parent my children apart from the community of the church that we have, where there are other brothers and sisters who can uh, pour into our children, encourage them, pray for them, correct them. Um, as as parents, we need help. We are uh, discouraged or confused or um, you know perplexed about certain things and need others to lean on. Um, I think modeling for our children what it looks like to be a Christian is an important value for us. Um, there's a there's a teaching aspect to parenting. Okay, the kids are immature. They're doing stuff wrong. There's a lot of stuff they don't know. So I'm going to teach them A, B, and C. I'm going to say, you, know, you, you should stop doing X, Y, and Z. Start doing A, B, C. Um, I think that's an important part of parenting, but even more foundational to that is just being a Christian. Mm -hmm. And part of that means recognizing that you're a sinner mm -hmm. and you sin against your children and you sin against your mm -hmm. spouse and you need to confess your sin and you need to humble yourself and you need to be transparent and authentic. And I think that if our kids see us as perfect, like, my parents don't sin or I never see them sin or I never hear them confess sin. Uh, number one, you're probably not being an authentic person. And then number two, you're not really modeling uh, the Christian life, which mm. is a continual process of uh, confessing and repenting and um, seeking the Lord together. So we yeah. try as best as we can to point our kids to Christ and, and to model what that looks like to be a Christian. That's great. So one of the big questions, and Philip and I talk about this a lot, we call passing away graduation. But mm. when we start to talk to people about their legacy and we talk about retirement, you know, retirement's really like a hundred year old experiment. What are what's kind of your take on the biblical view of retirement? And then like how do you practically approach that as a Christ follower with like your own vocation and you know, wealth building practices so that you can, uh, yeah, kind of achieve time freedom, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, I'm, so let's see, how old am I now? 41, I'll be 42 um, this summer. So, you know, it feels, retirement feels a long way off to me. Um, but another sense, I know all of life is like, it's going to be here before we know it. So just trying from a practical standpoint to be regularly investing in retirement so that that when that time and age comes, that doesn't need to be a source of great angst or anxiety or um, wealth acquisition at that stage, but it's been kind of a slow build over the years. Um, from a Christian standpoint, you know, you mentioned it being a 100-year experiment, and if you go looking in the Bible for the concept of retirement, it's not there, which doesn't mean that it's unbiblical. Um, or, you know, certainly not sinful. But I think that probably too many people think of it as um, a coasting. Yeah. You know, yeah. like if I get to this point, I get to kind of finally take my foot off of the gas and I'm going to coast to the finish line. And anecdotally, it seems like people who 
who don't have things to do, who don't feel like they're making meaningful contributions anymore, actually end up dying more quickly and being Mm -hmm. unhappy in their retirement. So Mm -hmm. I think of retirement, obviously there needs to be some slowing down. Um, But I think there's another sense in which maybe we can think of some aspects of life as slowing down and other aspects aspects of life as accelerating. Mm-hmm. So just as I envision myself as a 70-year-old, not having to go in to do an eight-to-five job anymore, what a wonderful opportunity to be mentoring mm-hmm. people in our community, people who have similar gifting and vocation that I have, younger people in our church. Now I'm freed up not to take uh, half a dozen cruises a year um, <laughs> necessarily, um, but you know, maybe I do take a cruise and then maybe I redouble my efforts to really pour myself into the next generation. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think as a Christian, we don't want to think of retirement as merely, um, kind of the accumulation of all these goodies. And now I just get to sit back and enjoy it and coast. Um, but and John Piper has a little booklet, Don't Waste Your Retirement. Um, you're, you're freed up. You don't have young kids at home anymore. You've got um, cash flow coming in. You have, ca- you have cash flow if you've done your planning and you don't have to be kind of, uh, you know, burning midnight oil to try to um, accumulate wealth. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you've set yourself up in such a way that now you can, now you can serve. Mm-hmm. Rather than thinking of retirement as just, oh, now I can finally be served. Now I can receive. Yeah, that's that's an important part of life. But what if the idea of giving, um, helping others who are financially strapped, helping others who need to to think through how to manage this crazy world that we're in, think of, thinking of retirement as an opportunity uh, rather than just kind of the time for coasting and, um, and being served. That's sure. the kind of perspective I want to try to have on it. That's Absolutely. Neat. And that's what we kind of talk to our clients about is like, really, you should never retire. You should change your vocation or what you're really passionate about. But so we just had a, a, a podcast that we talked to Adam Carroll and he talked about the reason why you want to have financial freedom is then you can have time freedom to do what you're passionate about. When you have time freedom, then you can have relationship freedom. And when you have relationship freedom, then you can have service freedom. And kind of walking back through that is whatever you're trying to do, whatever that goal is, you still should be passionate about serving other people. And you should do that now. And you should be passionate about all the other things, relationships and, and time freedom. You should be trying to push towards that goal and not lose focus. Because what I think we we've seen this a lot is uh, we'll, we'll, talk to an individual that will be really passionate about something, but they're waiting until another time or when I retire, yeah. it's going to be like this yeah. or that. And, yep. you know, honestly, it never seems to come to fruition for them because no. they've been ingrained for so long. You should really be starting those things that you're passionate about what God's gifted you in earlier than retirement right? You should try to figure out ways to serve other people that you're, you know, excited about and passionate about earlier. Um, So that's, that's really in line with the way that we talk to our clients. And, you know, when people are, are 
are told that, or, or we kind of talk about that, introduce that concept, it seems like it fires up even more. And I think about my aunt, who is a newer believer, and she's retired. And I don't think I've ever seen anybody work as hard. And she would say she's never worked as hard in her life as she has now, but she's passionate about it. And it's bringing life into her. Mm-hmm. And she might start a company in Africa. Like, and she's 70. You know, and like she wouldn't, she would say like, this is the best work she's ever done because it's fulfillment and it's passion, it's desire, all this stuff that she felt that God has called her her whole life. Um, she just now, she would say that she wished she would have done this way earlier, but sometimes it's not the case. Yeah. Well, one thing I really appreciated, Philip, that you mentioned is the terminology of changing vocations. And that's something that I think is, is, often misunderstood and is subtle, but it's really important that a lot of times we take vocation and we make an equal sign with our primary source of income, you know, Mm -hmm. our, our, let's call it our eight to five job. Mm -hmm. Your vocation is your calling and there's not just one vocation. So when I retire, Lord willing from Crossway, when I'm 70 years old, I will not I will never say like, I don't have a vocation. I will have a new vocation. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, no family is vocation. So I was yes. single up until I was 22 years old and that was my vocation. I was a single man and then I got married. And so I added the vocation of husband to as one of many vocations, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't have children. So I wasn't a father. And then I added fatherhood vocation. So there are all those sort of things. Those are all callings that have unique responsibilities, obligations, certain joys and certain sorrows attached to it. But I just, uh, sorry to go off on that little hobby horse there, but I, I no. appreciate that terminology of changing vocations, not I'll be done with my vocation and then what do I do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's a crucial thing to remember. Yeah. So here's there's a question that Brian and I wrestle with from time to time. And it's it's been this age old question is are you pursuing worldly passions or are you pursuing like godly desires? Um, or worldly desires or godly passions. That, so how do you and how do people and I would say Brian and I help uh, facilitate and uh, draw people to a conclusion where we know like, yeah, this is something that is laid on your heart and it's not just you chasing after money. Yeah. So the question is, how do you discern the difference between the two of those? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say that. Well, I, I mean, that's a fantastic question. I don't think there's a, a, a quick and easy answer other than there's some things that are just obvious. Um, you know, if, if you're thinking about like contemplating prostitution, like, <laughs> No, there's not really a debate. That's an immoral <laughs> of passions and wealth and money. Well, that that um, solves our problem right now, Brian. Like, don't, don't do that, man. <laughs> yeah. So you finally get your answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> Evidently. So then I think there are other things that are not uh, immoral in and of themselves, but you try to discern, am I, am I doing this for my own glory am I, or am I doing this for God's glory? Mm-hmm. Am I doing this merely to build myself up, to to build up my bank account, or am I doing it so that it can be, I can be of service to other people and to provide for other people, to encourage other people? And I think in some ways those, it needs to be sort of a case by case basis. And and um, one of the things that the Bible teaches us is that um, our hearts are are self deceitful. 
mm-hmm. that um, you know people commit all sorts of gross immoral uh, sin and convince themselves that it's it's okay or um, you know tell themselves that they're doing things for noble purposes when that's not reality so go back to having the right people in your life who can be candid with you mm-hmm. as a christian i think you need a um an objective standard that goes beyond just your subjective feelings that say this is what is true and this is what is false uh, this is what is worth pursuing this is what is uh worth fleeing from mm-hmm. and then to try to to make um you know as much discernment as possible mm-hmm. it's always helpful for me to remember that um, it seems like the wealthiest people in the world can often be um, more unsatisfied than people mm-hmm. who are are living in, in such a way that they're meeting all of their needs. Um, so that's just a reminder to me that that I'm always tempted to think if I just have a little bit more, if I just get to that point, if, if my income bracket just hits this level, mm-hmm. that's when I'm going to not feel anxiety. That's when I'm going to feel satisfied. That's, mm-hmm. and it just, it never comes. And, uh, you know, people who are earning 10 times the amount of money that I'm earning still end up feeling that same way, sometimes even more anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, so all those things are kind of helpful for me to keep in the back of my mind. That's great. That's great, man. There's wow. been... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for this interview. I have a feeling we're probably going to want you on more again, for sure. again. Um, and many times. So Justin, thank you for your time. So tell me if our listeners want to hear more about you or, or find out, or how do they get in contact with you? Yeah, I think probably the easiest way is just to, to Google my name, Justin Taylor, maybe TGC, which stands for the Gospel Coalition, and find the sort of things that I blog about that interests me and what I tweet about. So not saying it's yeah. for everybody, but if they ever wanted to, to hear more they could. You are actually very accessible on Google. I would echo that. So as we prep for this uh, interview, I was like, oh, wow, he's right there. <laughs> he's number one. <laughs> so yeah, echo that. So yeah, thank you so much again, Justin, for just sharing all that and uh, yeah, relating it, I think in such a, uh, just an easy way. I think sometimes, you know, when we interweave faith and Christianity and some stuff, you know, people can feel condemnation or judgment but uh yeah i just felt this like kind of ease and comfortableness for me today and it was just like so refreshing so yeah well thank you guys and thank you for all the work that you're doing to help uh everyday folks like me um in your area and even beyond now with the podcast really discover kind of an uncommon lifestyle and and to use wealth not just to hoard it, but as a gift right. to serve other people. So thank you guys. Yeah. Really appreciate your ministry and what you're doing. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks. Well, uh, if you guys like what you heard, uh, subscribe, uh, and like it and rate it. And then again, if you guys ever have any questions, reach out to us. We're from Uncommon Wealth Partners. We'd love to hear from you guys and we would love to just, yeah, walk you through this uncommon life because we're all projects. So thanks again, yeah. Justin, and we appreciate everybody. Thanks everybody. That's all for this episode of the Uncommon Life Project, brought to you by Uncommon Wealth Partners. Be sure to visit UncommonWealth.com to learn more about our services. Don't miss an episode as we introduce you to inspiring people who are actively pursuing an uncommon life.